Hi there, come up on the porch. We're just sitting here watching it rain and talking about Louisiana. I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And this is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, episode 539 for September 16, 2023. Welcome back. Uh, tonight we have a special treat for me. We're talking to a Bob man about his uh, book, Kingfish U, Huey Long and LSU, and he's written a, a book that focuses mainly on that uh, relationship, because, uh, you know, LSU is the house Huey built, um, and, um, you know, it, it bears its stamp to this day that those Depression-era buildings are quite spectacular, and, and I believe also not just the buildings, but he wanted to make LSU, Huey did, a, uh, a nationally respectable school, and so he started bringing in better professors in each discipline, right? Yeah. Well, they, they, the conventional wisdom before, really before the Depression, used to be that, and I would, you would hear this mostly from the so-called northern elites, but they would say that there weren't any good public universities in the South, they, and they weren't talking about the Dukes and the Tulane and Rice's, they were talking about the public. They said you can't go any further south than, than North Carolina, or maybe, maybe I think they said either South Carolina or Georgia. But you couldn't go into this area, like Louisiana, because Oklahoma, Arkansas, and find a good public university. So yeah, if you even wanted to make it a powerhouse, you know, a state powerhouse. Well, and I remember um, Tech was going through that upgrading process. You and I were students there, and they um, were switching it so that in order to be a tenured English professor, mm. you need to have a PhD and some publications and some uh, conferences, which is standard. This is just basic standard uh, across the country, but apparently it hadn't been a thing in Louisiana until then. <laughs> Maybe LSU got there a little sooner, but yeah, it, it, it makes your degrees work more as oh, yeah. students. If you have well, a, it's, a, a, it's the prestige and it's the, the name recognition, all that. I mean, really. Yeah. And um, yeah, so uh, here you wanted to read education, and this is a examination of one particular part of that, and that's Huey Long and LSU. Uh, uh, stay tuned for our chat with Bob in, uh, in a few minutes. Uh, but first, this week in Louisiana history. So this week, well, the page disappeared. Okay, so this week in Louisiana history is a Huey, a Huey Day. Uh, this day, actually, in Louisiana history, August the 8th, 1935. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure why we're so far behind on that. But, uh, yeah. I guess because it was Huey, Huey News. Yeah, he was shot to death uh, in the state capitol in Baton Rouge by Dr. Carl Austin Weiss. Yeah, so this is actually just a few, a few weeks behind. Uh, but this is a really, you know, momentous day in Louisiana and really in, in U.S. history as well. Uh, it's, uh, so Dr. Carl Austin Weiss Jr. shot him to death. And it's believed that Weiss may have been acting in revenge of Long's public slandering against his father. And, um, yeah, there's been a persistent conspiracy theory, pushed probably by the uh, Carl Weiss family, that um, it was either some kind of uh, setup, you know, some kind of conspiracy, or, or maybe uh, Weiss wasn't armed and the, his bodyguards 
shot Huey while they were shooting lights. And, uh, and our friend Huey, uh, Lamar White, has done a series of excellent uh, articles on this topic at um, Bayou Brief. And uh, if you looked up Huey Long on Bayou Brief, he has uh, all, the, all the articles they have gathered together. So you can read them. And they're very interesting. And we've talked to Lamar at length about them. Well, and he he came. He's debunked the old uh, story that, you know, they, the so-called bullet holes in the marble down there were from the assassination. <laughs> well, I, it's not even the same marble, you know. Yeah, well, and it's natural holes, apparently. They've got nothing to do with bullets at all. Right, uh, yeah. That's yeah. told to all of us as kids that, you know, these, these were the bullet holes that, or where the bullets hit the marble. From well, the I thought that until we talked to Lamar. So, uh, anyway, listen to Bob Mann now and uh, go back and... Uh, we listened to uh, Lamar White on uh, his his uh, investigation of Huey Long. So, and, uh, uh, next for this week in Louisiana, New Orleans history, uh, the Beatles at City Park. Finally, some happy news. Um, Wednesday, September 16th, 1964, a sellout crowd of 27,000 plus New Orleanians, most of them young girls, <laughs> City Park Stadium. Um, on that Wednesday, September 16th, 1964, to meet the Beatles. Uh, general admission tickets, $5, um, opening at 8. The show, oh, New Orleans, um, on Frogman Henry, Jackie DeShannon, and the Bill Black Combo. So, you know, people from around the world come to New Orleans to perform here, but they almost always want to jam with the, uh, with the bands that we have here already. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. That must be about the time y'all moved here. Uh, this is 1964. Mm-hmm. Well, now for uh, this week in Louisiana. So this week in Louisiana, we highlight the Zydeco Cajun Prairie Scenic Byway. <clears throat> this is a 283-mile route. Uh, the duration is one two days for a self-guided tour. The Zydeco Cajun Prairie Singing Byway pays tribute to the music of South Louisiana, touching many iconic music spots while ambling through serene rolling prairies. Coffee farms, sweet potato fields, and pastures where beef cattle and saddle horses graze are just a few of the features on the byway. The ride along uh, this byway also illustrates why Louisiana is well known for its many festivals. Towns along the route hold celebrations to honor everything from cotton to crackers. Byway consists of three loops and a spur, so visitors have their choice of routes. So Very you good. So, uh, yeah, there's so much uh, to see and take in in Louisiana. It's good to have, uh, you know, like just if you do this, then you get a, a, a mental picture of um, the uh, scenic area that we have Cajun Zydeco bands. And, uh, yeah, I get that. By get the that, way, we should have mentioned this a Last week or week before last when we did a byway segment uh, like this one, if you go to the state, and I don't have the, um, the state website and, you know, at my fingers or right in my head, but if you go to the state, you type in on Google Byways, it will take you to the appropriate website, and you can actually see the route. Yeah, it's, it's pretty extensive. I've been to the thing multiple times. Yeah. See the 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 uh, route that you will take, and there's you know right. highways is right near us. It's right over here in Beale Parish. And, uh, yeah, and you can plan that all out. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. You get a map. You get uh, I think you get the the names and locations of various uh, sites that are along the, the routes. 
So it's a real valuable resource if you want to. Yeah. Yeah. Things. Yeah. You know, the, given that we have 41 million visitors coming to Louisiana from around the world every year, uh, we really do need to, uh, you know, like publicize this kind of stuff because there are people that are interested in it. In a, um, so yeah. Now for this week's postcard from Louisiana. I listened to the Rug Cutters play at the Favela Sheep Bar on Frenchman Street in New Orleans.
Mills owns her interview with Bob Mann about Huey Long and LSU. I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. We're back today with Bob Mann. Hey, Bob. Hi, guys. Good to be Howdy. with you. Good. Great. How are you doing? Doing really well, thank you. Well, good. We had you on a while back, but you have a new book out that we wanted to talk about. Why don't you tell us, uh, tell our listeners the name of the book and where they can find it. Okay, thanks. Yeah, it's uh, it's called Kingfish U, U.E. Long and LSU, published by LSU Press, and it's available in Louisiana, just at about every every bookstore, uh, or online at Amazon and the other online booksellers, or I'm also selling uh, signed, personalized copies of the book at my website, which is kingfishu.com. Cool. And uh, I want to start with a personal story. Uh, back in 1988, I enrolled at LSU uh, to get a PhD in uh, complete. And my first office I ever had as a uh, you know a, a grad student uh, was in the bottom of the stadium. It seems that there were these rooms they had used at one point for um, dorms, and there were still showers that were still caught, uh, you know, uh, beds with their, uh, with uh, the mattresses and all that. And uh, I think some of my colleagues may have spent some time up <laughs> for free rent. But how did it come to be that there was a, a dormitory under the stadium, or maybe more importantly, how there became to be a stadium over the dormitory? <laughs> yeah, so that's a, it's a really interesting um story about that and you know it's it's so the the legend that i had heard and that i've had repeated to me a number of times is some variation of this story that that long wanted to expand the stadium tiger stadium which was built in 1924 before he became governor so he inherited the stadium when he became governor 28 it was already there and he didn't think that that he could get the money out of the legislature for a uh, football stadium, but he thought if he told them it was for dorm rooms that <laughs> they would give it to him. So he told them it was for dorm rooms and he used used it to expand the stadium, but putting dorm rooms underneath it. And uh, that is what the, uh, that is definitely what the school did on several occasions in the thirties, but it is not accurate. The, the story that Yui was somehow deceiving the legislature to get this done is just not true. Um, one, one thing I learned when I, I found out in my research that this is an idea that someone had come up with at LSU in the mid-20s, shortly uh -huh. after the stadium was built. Um, and it had been sort of an idea floating around LSU. And then um, LSU got about $250,000 for... Uh, you know, for expansion of the of the campus, and Skipper Hurd, who was the who was then the athletic a longtime athletic director at LSU into the 50, 1950s, uh, took that idea to James Monroe Smith, the president of the university, and along, and they saw it as a twofer, and it and it was a brilliant idea, but it wasn't <laughs> Yui's idea, but it was the campus was growing so quickly. It was exploding, and students were just pouring into this campus, and they needed a place to put them all. But they also, you know, because of the growth of the football program and the popularity of the football program, they needed more stands in the in the stadium. So it really was a, a very clever uh, twofer. But it was mostly meeting the need 
for housing students. At one point, by my estimation, about 40% of all the students at LSU were living under the stands at Tiger Stadium. Oh, my goodness. Now, was it still an all-male school back then, like only guys, or when did they... Yeah. No, it was a it was a co-ed school um, when you know into the it, it was a co-ed school in the in the in the teens and and uh, and twenties. Um, it was predominantly male, but there were a lot of female students. And it, and uh, when the new campus was built uh, in, in the current location, there was this old campus which is on the side of the where the current state capitol is. And there were really, they just, when they built the new campus, they really only built uh, dorm rooms for male students, cadets. Uh, those were the, the sort of the recreation of the, uh, of the, of the uh, Pentagon barracks that are still there in both places, as a matter of fact. But they, they left the student, the, the female students, the women were still living on the old campus and taking a train down in the morning to go to classes and they take the train back in the afternoon. But very quickly, they realized they wanted to consolidate the campus because they were selling off all the all the old land. That old campus was disappearing, and they right. needed they needed space for the new students. So then they built Smith Hall, which is now Rough and Pleasant Hall, which was the women's dormitory that housed about 400, 500 uh, women uh, starting in the early 30s. So the other story is part of the Huey Apocrypha. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I guess it was a cool Louisiana kind of a you know, political maneuver, and it got ascribed to our cool political, uh, you know, like nobody knows any of the other names. We all know Huey, so it yeah. drifted on toward him. Yeah, and I think also uh, there were just, you know, it, it sounds like something Long would have done, and he did, he did some outrageous stuff. You know, he did some outrageous, there was some, a lot of clever financing that went into building this campus, and it, so it, it there were that and a couple of other stories that I'd always heard sounded very much like things Long would do because they were the kind of things Long would do. But, but, and that's why I think that the, the legends caught on and have been so uh, uh, firmly etched into, into our, into our memory because it just sounds like something he would do. Yeah. And it's like any proverb that ever got written eventually gets attached to the book of proverbs by solomon because that's the only book of proverbs any of us ever heard of so yeah <laughs> um, well let's go back so originally um lsu was founded as uh, what the louisiana seminary and it was in pineville louisiana the first head of it was uh, general uh, sherman is that right general william tecumseh sherman yep yeah, that's right and, uh, it was because the state of Louisiana wanted to train cadets so that they could fight in the upcoming Civil War. <laughs> and so Sherman spends his first year, or his only year there, uh, writing all these letters. We've got them on our website. And some of them are trying to get his cadets out of trouble. They got into in town, bar fight or something. But also he's writing all of his friends uh, in the South uh, because it was very friendly towards Southerners begging them to not do this you know whatever you do this is a this is going to be way worse than you think it is and um so uh, from that beginning eventually they moved to baton rouge and eventually they moved to the spot it is now so how did that happen that it started moving in the first place i imagine it wasn't popular in pineville <laughs> well yeah pineville was a was kind of a remote location of course baton rouge in those days was fairly remote too as far as it was not a big it was not a big town, uh, but it was a state capital. And I think it, I'm not an expert in the early uh, history of LSU, but I suspect it had to do so, because of the state capital. 
Um, but uh, so where it is now is its third location in Baton Rouge, and I and it was it was in in all the all the moves in Baton Rouge were about just accommodating the growing student body and the and the and just the need for a greater for a larger physical plant, and where it was before it moved to to this current location in North Baton Rouge was 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 probably adequate for a college you know like maybe Centenary which was started out in Jackson and moved up to Shreveport that was you know a liberal arts college that didn't require uh, in the, in the case of LSU uh, land for agricultural uh, experiments uh, this was a you know this was a an agricultural mechanical school and uh yeah, and it I didn't have the land out. i had a class and i was walking to it and my grandparents were dairy farmers so there was mm -hmm. a suddenly a very familiar smell and i look over and there's a barn with animal yeah. you know horses and cows in it right in the right. middle of campus so it's a uh, and it's also a mechanical school and that uh, they got engineers the state aggie the state you know the state land grant school along with southern yeah so you know the in 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 the late teens, it became apparent that the the school, the people who are running the school, especially the agricultural faculty and leadership, and alumni who cared about the school, like John Parker, who was not yet governor but would soon be governor, took up the cause of getting the university the land that it needed to be the proper agricultural school that the state had envisioned for it to be, and so that's why it moved down here primarily was just they needed more land. Today, when you're looking up like uh, how to grow crawfish in Louisiana, how to grow rice in Louisiana, whatever we're trying to grow, there's some like uh, pamphlet or handout or short book that's been written at LSU by their agricultural folks. So it's very important uh, university for the whole state, for the way we do agriculture in the state to this day. Yeah, and all that, you know, all the... All, in those days, all the agricultural, all the, the experiment stations were not in Baton Rouge. They were not, you know, there were there was Crowley and and the the uh, in Monroe, you know, Washtenaw Parish in New Orleans, and there really wasn't room to do anything in Baton Rouge, and it was just a, a big deficiency. It's interesting, and what 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 got John Parker uh, upset though was not was not so, the first thing I think that uh, that he heard. He was outraged when he heard that that students didn't know how to how to put a, a bridle on a mule <laughs> and, you know, that was, like we gotta we gotta teach these kids how to hitch up a mule you know and so uh, that's, Dude, that's why they went to school is to get away from that I yeah my dad did he, he said he'd have done a right. jobs before he was a farmer so, uh, all was, these guys had you know very i think limited they wanted a bigger school but they wanted to be a bigger agricultural school they didn't have right. the ambitions that Yui long had when he came along right. to make it a national power a real university because i think they only saw it as, as an agricultural and mechanical school primarily right. well, and they have a, a in a, i guess it's near monroe it's in calhoun between uh, ruston and monroe there's a lsu agricultural outpost there and you know there's i think they closed it down oh did they well it's very yeah it's been closed a long time i think too it's very different terrain, the the, uh, the red clay hills of North Louisiana. So you can't really do that research in uh, Baton Rouge, no matter how much land you have. You have to spread out some. But yeah, so um, there was a there was a peach orchard, I think, on the opposite side of the highway near that particular extension. 
And then, then they worked with the individual, like my, my great uncle, my dad's uncle was the county agent up in Morehouse Parish for ages. And he, he worked with LSU Extension a lot. I mean, they were getting their brochures all the time at yeah. his office up in Morehouse Parish, up in Bastrop. Uh, you know, he was going and passing that stuff off to the farmers. He was out working with the farmers all the time because, I mean, he grew up on my great-grandparents' property on a farm. And so that's what they did. I mean, it was it was that original vision, not Huey's vision, but it was that original vision of LSU extended all, you know, through all 64 parishes. So let's move toward Huey then, since this is the focus of the book. And what was his goal for LSU? When he looked at LSU, um, and there's a lot of, you know, stuff about the football team, the band, but it seems like he wanted to, you know, beef it up scholastically too. Yeah, and I, but the, I think the first thing to know about Huey and LSU was that he was he was not in in 1924 when he ran for governor the first for the first time he was a, a an adamant opponent of the expansion of the school to where it is now he campaigned against John Parker's vision for LSU he called it Parker's John Parker's Temple of Vanity uh, it never was really clear to me why he was was opposed to it except for the fact that he he had fallen out with Parker and he was opposed to everything Parker was was for right but it didn't get him anywhere and um and he really liked LSU he wasn't running against LSU as much as he was running against the relocation of LSU he sort of some, he, had the sentimental attachment law? to the old campus didn't he read law at LSU for a while and no that was at Tulane yeah, his only experience at LSU uh, as a student was in 1903 and 1910 when he represented Winfield High School in the in the, in the state uh, high school rally, and he claims he fell in love with the school then, and I, and that may be why he was sort of sentimentally attached to the old campus in in 1924. But he didn't really become the champion of expanding this campus until he became until he became governor. Well, then it would be his school and not that other guy's yeah. temple That's of vanity. Right. He needed a That's temple right. of vanity. And I'll say those. Well, if you say, if you think about, if you think about the that time, you said around 1903 or so. So there's not anything in North Louisiana, with the exception at that time, really. Of, I mean, Tech is a very young school. Northwestern is only barely older. Grambling has just been founding centenaries around, but that's it. I mean, there's really nothing up here, and particularly in terms of a, of a major university in those days, because all the other schools in North Louisiana are a bunch of basically a bunch of regional institutions. You know, they don't have any kind of national standing at all, and really not even a lot of state standing. So, of course, I mean, does that, that make sense? In other words, that he would really, really fall in love with LSU. Well, so there's one major public university at the time, is what you said, Stephen. So, uh, yeah, yeah. build one up, you build up LSU. So, yeah. So, um, <coughs> yeah, so he uh, switched and started supporting it. Um, what are some of the, like, was the quadrangle there already, or did he put that up, yeah. or the, was that WPA? Yeah, the, like, how did the, the um, building the, part of the building happen? Yeah, the, the, the area around the quad is really what it looked like, except for the you know, the, the trees are mature now, but if you walk around the quad, except for the library, which needs to be blown up and fired into the sun, uh, um, yeah, who built that, thing? <laughs> that was built in the fifties. So okay. it was it was plopped into the middle of the the northern end of the quad and really mm -hmm. defiles the the historic quad. It's a it's a building that should never have been put there. Uh, it doesn't match in, in uh, architecturally. It's a mismatch, but it's just it was it defiles the original. Uh, historic vision for the 
campus that was that was drawn up in the in the early 20s. And when Huey got there, those, most of those buildings were already there. The buildings that he was responsible for or that his administration, his, his organization in the way of, you know, uh, uh, O.K. Allen and Dick Lesh, uh, and that sort of that decade of the, of the 30s when the long organization was really pouring resources into LSU, are buildings like the UEP Long Fieldhouse, the expansion of the, uh, of the stadium, um, Smith Hall, now rough and pleasant hall, uh, OK, Allen Hall, which is which is you know on the on the quad. That's and, where I went to school. Was it right? Allen Hall? Yeah. Yeah. The first day of class, or the first day uh, they were inducting us, um, you know, uh, grad student, and uh, Dr. May got up and was telling us a little bit about the history of the building, and he said it was gloriously unrenovated. <laughs> <laughs> it looked like Huey had just walked out, and they had this wonderful Depression era like. Uh, Socialist realism murals on the yeah, it's still there. Yeah, right. It's amazing. Yeah, that was a that's an amazing building, and it was built for about, as I recall, about six hundred thousand uh, dollars. You know, all all those buildings in that era were built for two or three, four hundred thousand dollars. And you know, when when Long went to start selling property of of the old state capital property to build LSU, I think they, they pretty quickly were able to cobble together about. Three or four million dollars, and that built a lot. That built a, that financed a lot of buildings, right. and at the same time, they're building uh, a med school in New Orleans. There was no med school. Huey Long and and Arthur Vadreen, who was then the superintendent of the uh, of Charity Hospital, came up with the idea that LSU needed a, that Louisiana needed a public med school, and they they started that in the fall of 1930. And by the fall of 1931, they had it up and running. It's it's wow. really remarkable how quickly they got that med school going. So what was his goal in expanding the school? Like, what was he, you know, above and beyond the, you know, enclosed area of the university? Why, but what's it doing for the state? What's it doing in the nation? That kind of uh, his larger vision. Well, I think there's a lot, there's several reasons. Uh, you know, one, I think he just, you know, for when it comes to like the med school and the nursing school, he just, he realized that. Louisiana needed to be training doctors and and nurses, and that Tulane, we that we shouldn't and couldn't rely on on Tulane because it was the, it was a private school, and it was it was you know average people average kids couldn't afford to go there, and a lot of its students were out of state. They were they were graduating from Tulane and going to practice in other places. So and so it was it was a, it it needed a school that served the state, and that was somewhat the vision of. John Parker and and people before Long as as well. For, clearly, it wasn't Long's in, in unique, you know, vision. In 1988, I started school there and uh, classes for grad school and a PhD program. Thousand dollars a quarter. One thousand dollars a quarter. Yeah. Was, I mean, it was you know you noticed it, but it was very cheap, and you don't leave school with thousands and thousands of dollars in student debt because. It's not that expensive at that time. No, in fact, it was. We talk about the, you know, the tops program in Louisiana. If you could get into LSU, either by getting, you know, graduating high school, an accredited high school, or taking an entrance exam, um, there was no tuition if you were a Louisiana resident. Um, if you were out of state, they charged you sixty dollars. Oh, and, the good old days. Yeah, and the the room and board was roughly six to seven to eight hundred dollars, depending on how well you you ate and where you stayed. 
So students could, you know, it's still it's in the it's in the Great Depression, the depths of the Great Depression. So six hundred dollars a year is, was a lot of money, but but students, a lot of students could afford it because Long helped them find jobs. And when the WPA mm-hmm. got really running in the mid thirties uh, around here, they a lot of students got jobs, you know, with federal government jobs. Going back to what you, what Yui was doing, I think there was some there was definitely self-aggrandizement here. He wanted a better school for the state. He wanted more kids to get more white kids, I should say, to get an education here. But um, it really, to me, what, what I realized after reading some of the history of Southern football was that it really had a lot to do with football glory and that, the, that most of that football glory in the mid-20s <clears throat> on was going, was being, that, that light, that, glor- that glorification was being experienced in places like Alabama and Georgia because Alabama went to the had these amazing had this amazing season in 1925 undefeated probably you know without a doubt the best football team in the, in the country but got no respect three other teams up east turned down the Rose Bowl committee and they finally went with Alabama because no one else would take the the bid um, and Alabama goes out to to to, to Pasadena and wins the Rose Bowl in a, in a surprise. I mean, a shocking victory uh, over University of Washington and vindicates the South as a region. You know, I mean, it was just the, 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 to understand what that victory in the Rose Bowl meant for Southern football and just overall Southern pride. You have to really understand, you know, how the, how the South felt in the post-Reconstruction era that the rest of the country really looked down on every aspect of life in the South. And um, in Alabama, almost single-handedly vindicated the South through football, and then they, then they did it again by going to the Rose Bowl again. And remember, this is the Rose Bowl in the in the, in the mid twenties was the only bowl game. It was it. It was the national championship game, and um, and then you know Georgia Tech goes to the Rose Bowl. Uh, you know, in, in nineteen I think nineteen twenty-eight, Georgia Tech goes to Yale and beats Yale in the Yale Bowl after having lost to them four years in a row. And suddenly, everybody's celebrating these colleges. Everybody's celebrating Southern football, and uh, and Yui, I just you know you just know Yui Long is looking at all this and and taking it in and realizing that he wants to have that kind of, um, you know that that kind of he wants LSU and Louisiana to be celebrated in the same way. I never found that he that he articulated that, except for the fact that he was obsessed with LSU going to the Rose Bowl. And I think that says that pretty much to me that kind of says it all. Um, ironically, because of his behavior, uh, is his erratic behavior and his his uh, authoritarian behavior around LSU and just Louisiana in general. The head of the Rose Bowl by 1934 said as long and announced said publicly, as long as Huey Long is is running Louisiana, LSU will never be invited to a Rose Bowl. So he was he he. He helped bring the school to this national prominence that it didn't have. It was a no. It was a nothing school on nobody's map in 1928, 1930, and by 1933, 34, everybody was talking about Yui Long and LSU. But the but it but it was and it, so it was it was so good in so many ways, but it was also really bad for the university. And the Rose Bowl situation was only one of of the several ways that Long got this school into deep trouble. So did the Sugar Bowl come along at this time to uh, balance the Rose Bowl, or when did yeah, that? Yeah, I think 
I, I don't know the exact date, but the Sugar Bowl comes along, I think, in the mid in the mid 30s, uh, mid to late 30s. Uh, so the Rose Bowl was, you know, by the time I think mid 30s, there were some other bowl games coming along, but the Rose Bowl was still the you know the big game in in, in college football. So that's cool. And um, what you're talking about, at least as far as the uh, football goes, at least what I've heard is that um, a he would help lead the band. And also, B, he would send uh, um, uh, plays to the coach that he wanted the, the ball team to play. So what's the truth behind that? Well, he did. He uh, So he wanted to be seen, uh, you know, so he was, he, he made a big spectacle of himself on the sidelines as a cheerleader, you know, and um, he uh, led the cheer, he le sort of led the, sec you know, he sort of led the fan section in cheers. He was sort of the head cheerleader. Uh, he was so committed to doing the cheering the right way one night he he summoned the whole student body to tiger stadium to instruct them in the right way to cheer um but he would he would he would spend a lot of time on the sidelines and in the locker room giving pep talks and um writing plays and what he did was uh he i mean he knew nothing about football he really didn't um there's this great story that fred ravenhorst who was the assistant coach told that Long turned to him one one day shortly before the 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 state fair game with Arkansas and Shreveport and said, "Well, I guess Arkansas will be kicking off to us this year, and or I think it was I think we'll be kicking off to them this year." And Ravenhorst looked at him and said, "What? Like, why would you say that?" He said, "Well, you know, we kicked off to them last year," and he so he didn't even understand the the he didn't understand a coin toss. Right. So he yeah. would he would go to. Um, Collier's magazine in those days ran uh, diagrams of football plays, and he would he would he would go to those and crib them, write them in his own hand, and turn them in as as a play that he had that he had designed. And they were blowing <laughs> him off. They weren't taking his plays. They weren't. Run What's that? So that's better than him designing it himself if he didn't know what. Yeah, yeah, he didn't know what he was doing, and he may have put his own little flair on them. I don't know, but they they were blowing <laughs> him off. They weren't using his place. So then he goes to less. This there was this football coach at Tulane who had been the quarterback for Tulane in the mid twenties, Lester Lautenschlager, who was an, who was then a state representative who had happened who happened to have voted for some of the articles of impeachment against Huey in nineteen twenty nine, and somehow he stayed friendly with the guy. So he goes to see Lautenschlager. And says these guys are blowing me off. I don't know whether they're blowing me off because it's me or because it's the the football plays are no good. Write me a couple of good football plays and I'll turn them in. So so Lon Schlager says he writes you out a couple of good football plays and Long turns them in. Back then, Tulane and LSU fierce rivalry. You know that's kind of they were funny that that would happen that way. And um, didn't didn't he also have some kind of a relationship with the? Was it the director of bands there or somebody that they Castro. wrote music together? Or? Yeah, that was Castro Carrazzo, who was the band leader from late 1934 uh, you know, through the 40s, uh, into the 40s when you know, he stayed there after Long died. But so, so <laughs> I like to tell people that Huey hired and fired, you know, he had three, there were three, he worked under three football coaches, <laughs> uh, th three band directors. Uh, two presidents. I mean, he, you know, but uh, uh, Carrazzo was his third band director. Well, I happen to have queued up a recording of Huey Long and Castro singing Every Man a King, if y'all would like to hear it. <laughs> That'd be great. Uh, I thought it was queued up. <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah, it's like the end of uh, 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 Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Where they're uh, singing um, You Are My Sunshine and the governor asks the good boys, you like the, you do like the song, boys? And he says, one of my favorites, governor. <laughs> Here, Lord, yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's a great song. But yeah, uh, so he was really enmeshed with, uh, you know, what was going on at LSU, more so than most governors are. Uh, yeah, no question about it. There was, I mean, it, it, just, it just became his identity, I think. It was just, LSU, he and LSU just sort of melded together. And one of the ways that football was not the only way but it was the it was the, the the most visible way, and by by the by thirty three and thirty four national sports writers were referring to the LSU football team as Yui Long's eleven, Yui <laughs> Long's boys. Um, so it was it was it was really became his you know his university his team. I would say of politicians who are out there today, the one that kind of replicates not the Yui Long platform, but the Huey Long style might be uh, Donald Trump in that he's always looking for some like uh, spectacular uh, stunt. You know, uh, Huey understood the uh, efficacy of political stuntsmanship in a way that most politicians do not. You know, we have these haircut, suit, and, you know, they're standing in front of something, uh, reading it like, uh, you know, they're uh, a hostage somewhere. Here come these guys, and they're just doing stuff, you know. Like here, uh, here, here he is mixing up a gin fizz. You know? <laughs> uh, he greets the uh, commodore of the uh, German ship in his green pajamas, and you know, the, the, whether these stories are true or not, they certainly uh, circulated widely. And, and he was not opposed to, uh, you know, the uh, that kind of attention because it gets him in the papers, right? Yeah. The uh, so. Part of it, I think, was because he was increasingly out of the newspapers. A lot of a lot of newspapers were, were kind of kind of uh, blocking him out, and uh, the anti-long newspapers. And he realized that he could get into those newspapers, back into those newspapers through the through the sports pages by affiliating himself with you know sort of becoming a a coach for LSU, and that helped him a lot. And he was also seen in a more uh, nonpartisan light by the by readers and by football fans who saw him as on the field, not giving a political speech, but by just being, a, you know, a fan of LSU as they were. It was so, an all-American boy who just loved football, you know. That, yeah, yeah, exactly. And He's, 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 he's the booster-in-chief. In yeah, he sense. was. He was the booster-in-chief for sure and in every way. But uh, it was that, that spectacle uh, he created, you know, he, he, he realized that the, the way he sort of melded the band and the cadets the, the cadet corps and the football team together was right. that you know when they would go on these these trips to places like Houston and Jackson and Nashville and and they and they went to uh they went to uh West Point in 1931 he couldn't go on that trip because his lieutenant he and his lieutenant governor had fallen I, out and he couldn't I leave remember the state. that yeah by the way I was at a I was at an event two nights ago and in, in, speaking in Shreveport. And this woman came up to me and introduced herself, and she was the granddaughter of Paul Sear, who was Huey's uh, lieutenant governor. And I well, said, "You couldn't go to the to the to the West Point game because your grandfather." <laughs> and she said, "I know, I know." Um, but when they would go to these towns, they would, you know, today if you if LSU goes to play Vanderbilt, they fly they fly on an airplane and take a bus from the airport 
to the hotel and and an air and, a, and then the same bus to the stadium then they would take the train into the middle of town and have a parade from you know from the to the you know to in in, in the case of nashville in october 1934 that from the train station from union station nashville to the war memorial tens of thousands of people showed up to watch this parade um and many of them were they wanted to see Huey long i'm sorry that's amazing. I've never heard that story, and it's just so brilliant. Of course, they had a parade. <laughs> well, they had, they, and they did that in they did that in um, in 1932 or 33 when they when they went to play uh, Rice in Houston. They did it the same year in um, in Jackson in 1934 um, when they went to play Ole Miss. Um, and uh, the the biggest one, the most the, the 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 most famous of these trips was the one that was to Nashville in October 1934, when Long went to the he goes to the Greek Theater and and announces that he's taking the Cadet Corps and the band, and then a bunch of students say they want to go, but they can't afford it, so Long starts lending them money in seven dollar increments, and before you know it, he's given out he's he's loaned. You know, several thousands of dollars. They line up at his hotel room that night at the Heidelberg Hotel, and he's handing out this, handing out cash to students, and they're signing their names on the back of laundry slips. And he takes, <laughs> they take thousands of people up to this, to this game in Vanderbilt, and it made national news. It just made, he, he, he sort of goosed the national attention to it by leaking that he might announce for president while he was in Nashville. So right. The attention was just, you know, it was just, it was, the, the situation was electric on that, on that trip. It was really one of the most, I think that it was maybe my favorite chapter in the book because it just sort of brings everything about Long's involvement with LSU together in this, this one train, train ride. Yeah, it's, uh... Bob, I have to bring, <clears throat> bring this up. I had, I was checking my uncle's life and death dates, my mom's oldest brother's life and death dates, and I knew he was at. LSU with Russell Long, but he was a little bit older than Russell. Russell was my dad's age. And I was right about this. I did like a quick guess. I figured he must have been born around 1915 or 16. He was. He was on one of those LSU football teams. And I think he was a scholarship student, but he was from Dubai. And he would tell stories about, oh, yeah, he was on that team. And he would tell stories about Long coming in the locker room and, you know, uh, doing a pep talk. He said it was like a like a revival almost. I mean, it was a, it was almost like a preacher coming in there. <clears throat> and it was a very fired up, as we would say today, a very fired up kind of event where he would come in and, you know, almost preach at those boys about how it wasn't just important for them to win for LSU, but for the state. I mean, it, it, this goes right back to what you said, that, that this was representing the state. And, and a lot of these were country boys like my <laughs> uncle and like my family. Well, they were, they were, you know, they were representing the state and they were from all over the state, like my uncle from up here in the hill country from Dubai, you know, and you had fellows from various other places in the state, but they were all coming together on that LSU football team. So it was a pretty heady experience from yeah. what he used to say. Well, your, your, your grandfather probably played in those years. Oh, it was my uncle. He was actually I mean, my your uncle. uncle. I'm sorry. Your uncle probably played for Russ Cohen, who was the first of the three coaches that, that Yui was, um, who played under Huey and Russ Cohen was probably the least inspirational of the three. He was a pretty good football coach. He'd come from Alabama. He'd worked for, he'd been the number one assistant to Wallace Wade, who was, you know, sort of the Nick Saban of his bear Bryant of his day. 
Um, but he was a really uninspirational guy. He was, you know, he did. He did not have a, the, the, the the players who I who I read about who talked about him said he knew a lot about football. He didn't know anything about managing young men, and so Long really took advantage of that, and 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 you know, Long recognized that pretty quickly, barged in and took that role away from him. He was the inspiration. He was kind of a take. He was a take charge kind of guy for sure, according to my uncle. Yes, he was. Yeah, so it was. Uh, I can see all these pieces separately, but it takes a real kind of political genius to put them all together. Like, uh, who would think about uh, you know the parade and him, uh, you know, haranguing the the guys, but. It does probably get him in a bunch of newspaper in a fairly normalizing way. Like he's not the boogeyman. He's not, you know, uh, he's not Stalin if Stalin was running or Lenin, whoever was in charge at the time. No, no, he's a good old American and loves football. You know, and that's um, you know, got a lot of salience throughout the country. Yeah, no question about it. I think it gave him. Uh, it was. It was. It was just a way for him. And, I, and look, I think it's it's what politicians do today. I mean, it's what Bobby, even people like Bobby Bobby Jindal, who I don't think really cares a whole lot for football, he was smart enough to recognize that he needed to make friends with the football coach. John Bell Edwards did the same thing. People like John McKithen, you know, Earl Long, they were they were associating themselves with the football team and also with LSU. I mean, you know, I, I Earl Long held his inauguration in, in Tiger Stadium in but 1948. You know, uh, uh, Bobby is a good example of the kind of politician who could never pull something like that off. Like he, he, he pulled a lot of stunts or tried to, but he always came across as stiff and affected, and it never clicked. You know, like uh, he would be at the White as House. wooden as a casket. He, would, he was as wooden as a casket. You know, he would be at the White House meeting with Obama, and there would be a, a video, you know, you know, TV camera on his way out, and he would grab that microphone and, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, so contrast that to the genius of Huey and being able to make that connection, you know, not just get out here and pull a stunt, but really connect with people across the state and across the country by doing so. Yeah, he did. And um, I think it was also because he connected <coughs> with, the, with the players. I mean, the players liked him. Um, they were, you know, he, uh, he got to know them all personally. He knew all their names. He spent a lot, he, you know, spent a lot of time with them. Um, and, you know, for one of the great stories is that after in, uh, in 1931, after three players got injured in a couple of games, uh, he goes and, and, and gathers them up and, and takes them and, and, and moves them into the governor's mansion for several months and nurses them back to health. And, and I mean, that's to me, <laughs> if you want to you want to talk about, you know, taking your love of LSU football to absurd ex extremes, that is that is a great example, you know, and actually moving football players into the mansion with you. And, um, I mean, he just, he really, you know, but I, I don't want to, I don't want people to think that this is just a book about football because as much as he loved LSU football, um, it really was just a part of it. He, you know, he did, he loved the band. He wanted mm -hmm. the band to be, you know, as, as important as the football team in a lot of ways than it and it was, and I think it still is here on this campus. And I think that's a legacy of Long. When Long became governor, uh, the you know the band was thir had thirty seven members. When he when he when he died, it had almost two hundred. 
Wow, wow, wow. I wanted to wow. a bit about the scholastic side because he did a lot to try to put the university on an equal, on a par with other state universities regarding, uh, like, the one thing I'm kind of familiar with is the English department because English. So, anyway, I, I entered there in uh, 1988, and um, the two leading lights, one, one day I was... Uh, I was in a class with Malcolm Richardson. I don't know if you know him. I know Malcolm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, he's teaching us uh, how to teach technical writing. Yeah, uh, he started that one day. So he does his cranky professor spiel, and he says, you know, this is 50 years exactly since Cleith Brooks and Robert Penn Warren wrote Understanding Poetry, which created the new uh, criticism, changed the way Poetry was studied throughout America and really through the English-speaking world. And even today, everybody starts, if not with their perspective, with some critical theory, you know. So they really changed the way English was done forever. And uh, then they went on to stellar careers. Um, every uh, All the King's Men won a, a Pulitzer. It won an Oscar when it was made into a movie. And, and that's just one book of one of them. They just had these uh, golden uh um, you can't get bigger as an English professor. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's 50 years on. They're both alive, he says. And uh, LSU is recognizing the occasion by doing absolutely nothing. So if it's in Mississippi, that I had, a, you know, Ole Miss, that I had a conference, <clears throat> that I had a parade probably, that had been on TV, uh, there'd be a special on PBS. It would just be all that stuff. But we weren't doing a thing about it. Now, I told that story one time too many to Stephen, and he said, oh, well, why don't we start an anthology? And I was like, I didn't mean us. I mean, <laughs> but, you know, these are two guys who were, they didn't become top flight after they got there. They were there because they were top flight. He gave them a job, and really, a uh, Robert Penn Warren at least never forgave him. You know, the, if you've read Every Man, like All the King's Men, you know, he's really negative on uh, on Huey and it comes out. I mean, the whole scandal in the in the book, I think, is about college football, right? The uh, governor's son is the also the uh, quarterback and he kills somebody in a DUI. And mm -hmm, so that's, right. the, that's kind of the corruption that he's worried about. But um, anyway, he... he put this department on the map. I mean, if it hadn't been for Huey Long, I would not have gone to LSU. I might have gone somewhere else. But, you know, he's the one that created those departments in a way that uh, made them respectable nationwide, not just uh, grab a teacher from somewhere to teach a class. Yeah. So when Huey becomes governor, LSU is, you know, has about is 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 much smaller than it was just five or six years later. It's a tiny little school with no with the only reputation it has is as a as a nothing school in a backwater part of Louisiana uh, that is vastly overshadowed by its southern rival to the south, Tulane. That it it just there's just nothing about LSU uh, that is distinguished. I mean, it is just not. You know, it's it's landlocked. It doesn't. It does. It's an agricultural school without any land. I mm. mean, it just doesn't have anything going for it. And um, and you know, they finally got the land, and they finally started getting you know the the agricultural part up and running. But it was. But it was. But even then, you know, the people who had envisioned the campus where it is now just had a very limited vision for it as a as an agricultural school 
They just they, they didn't ever think that it would it would have more than about three thousand students. That was John Parker's vision for it. It would be it would grow large enough to have three thousand students, and most of them would be, you know, taught agriculture. Um, now they, they couldn't that right. They, yeah, they just couldn't see beyond the Louisiana as sort of an agricultural state. They didn't. They just didn't. They were limited in vision, and and so what's amazing to me is not that LSU is you know be, becomes this this sort of semi-academic um, and athletic juggernaut that, that it became, as you described, is sort of this, this, this period in the 40s and, uh, you know, the thir- 30s and 40s and 50s when it was, it was really it's got a pretty good reputation and is attracting people like Robert Penn Warren and Brooks and, and a whole host of others who are leaving their positions. These aren't, these aren't, assistant professors who are just desperate for a job and they'll take a job anywhere. I mean, any school can hire those kind of people. Um, it's, it's, if you're a school that can get people like Brooks and, 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 and Warren and other people who are senior level to, to leave Vanderbilt and come to Baton Rouge, they're not doing it because they're, they're looking for a better climate. You know I mean? They, they want, uh, they want what, what the school has to offer. And so that happened so UE takes interest in LSU in the fall of the summer and fall of 1930, and within three years, um, with a little, 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 about about three years, well, less than three years, Brooks is here, and then Warren follows him. I think a year later, and there's all these other people who are just streaming down here to to join this faculty because suddenly the school has a reputation for being on the make. This is where, you know, you can get in on the ground floor of something really big that's going to happen here. And it did. It really did. Um, and so the way I describe it is Long took LSU from being a, a middling, nothing school to being a pretty impressive institution to almost destroying it all <laughs> in the course of about five years. And then, and then you know, his people... Um, by 1939, they really did almost destroy it in the Louisiana scandals when all these people, including Long's president, you know, go to prison. Okay. But it, but it survived because of people like Paul Abair and, and Troy Middleton were were able to, you know, cobble it back together and keep it from completely, you know, disintegrating. Middleton but it was it's, his own set of issues. <laughs> yeah, right. But I mean, it's just a, it's to me, it's just an amazing story. This, this wasn't like if you told me that this, if you described this a, a school like LSU that went from nothing to something in twenty years, I would say that's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's pretty good. Twenty years or ten years, that's pretty good. He did it in less than five years. And just imagine Harvard, Yale, and Princeton are adopting as a textbook understanding poetry written by these two LSU professors. It's- it boggles the mind even today to imagine that happening today. And like you say, this was, you know, right at the beginning of them, like making that push to try to become more academically relevant, which is, you know, yeah. a, a different vision for Louisiana than it most was. And, 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 you know, I don't think long, I don't think, I don't know that long really had a vision for Ellis. I don't think he said, I want this. I want us to start hiring really good English professors and that kind of thing. Uh, he had no opposition to it. Um, you know, he didn't, he didn't, it wasn't his idea to create LSU press and the, and the Southern review and all that. But he was a fan of the Reveille, right? <laughs> you know, he wasn't a fan of the Reveille for, for, for sure. Well, he wasn't, he wasn't, he, he was until he wasn't, but, but he, he, um, to write bad stories. <laughs> yeah. 
But he hired good, but he hired people like James Monroe Smith, who turned out to be a crook, but also was a pretty good administrator till he wasn't. And Smith was smart enough to hire people like Charles Pipkin, who was the head of the graduate school, who was really a force of nature and was the guy, along with you know, there were other other deans who were pretty good at what they did. But Pipkin was, I think, the between Pipkin and Smith, they 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 attracted some really good people. They recruited them hard. They paid them well. Um, um, uh, Fred Fry is another one who, when he became, uh, you know, uh, dean of of social of arts and humanities um, or arts and social sciences, I guess it was called in those days, he, um, be, you know, started making sure that that people were paid correctly. That if you got a promotion, you got a pay raise, and that you, and he found that there were assistant professors who were making more than full professors and that kind of thing. They got they they he they hired good people who who sorted out the mess. That they all inherited and turned it into a professional, a more professional organization. Yeah. Long didn't do that, but Long created the environment where it could be done. You have to have like uh, somebody's looking over what are you publishing, where are you publishing them. I mean, and also the money. Like uh, we have a technical writing um, concentration at the Louisiana Tech English Department. People can, you know, major in English, but focus on that. And uh, our technical writing professor left, and the full time one, and we had dickens of a time. Every year, I was on committee, <laughs> and we'd send, you know, but uh, you know, we're trying to get a tenure track professor, paying what tech pays, and we're in Ruston, which is in North Louisiana, and you know, it was just really hard to compete. And so, this one year, they decided, okay, we're going to get some because we want our program to be something, right? So. Uh, this year, the provost was on the, <laughs> you know, when the provost shows up and some deans and, and uh, they weren't hiring a track, nothing. They were hiring a head of the program who come in at full professor and they coughed up some extra money and we got a really good guy. Um, but you've got to be willing to, you know, like pay them to come here. And that's something Louisiana doesn't always understand. You know, why do you need to be money? Why do you need money? You know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, so, so the, I think that uh, to me, the, the part of all this that, that, you know, long sometimes doesn't get the credit that he deserves is, is that he created the, um, the environment for this school to become, uh, respected academically, and it wasn't just you know English. It was you know the the um, history department, the 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 government, you know then called government department. Um, I'm assuming it happened all across the school. I just only yeah. knew about that one. Music, the, the music school became. Mm -hmm. I mean, the music school was attracting amazing the art. You know, school of arts and science, uh, arts and um, dramatic arts was school music and dramatic arts was attracting amazing people from all over the country coming here to teach. Uh, that so it was just from. And, it, and, and part of that was because that's one of the buildings that I left out when we were talking about what Long built. He built, he, he raised the money and built, an, a, you know, a, a state-of-the-art, one of the best facilities for studying music and dramatic arts in the country in that, in that building. And it was, and so the, 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 the physical facility, the, 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 the actual building sold, I think, a lot of new faculty on it. They could come down here and they could have everything they needed um, they could have either the labs they needed, or they could have the studios they needed. Right. Uh, they, you know, so they were, they were, they were. When they, when, when somebody was either visited or told what else you had, 
I think it communicated we're treating faculty with respect here. We're, we, we value people and we're going to give you what you need to do your job. And that I think that still actually is a is a is something that attracts faculty today. There's a there's a bleed there's a bleed effect I believe that that you Bob or somebody maybe I mean I, Bruce and I, I've, I've suggested this that we we study this at some point but it seems to affect the tech because we're the state engineers college and we were created to be that right out of the gate in 1894 I mean it said we were supposed to be you know for the industrial arts which include engineering and the hard sciences. And so it winds up that we had, when my older cousins went to tech in the 60s, I think it was, they had people teaching them, uh, and these were in engineering and business, I think, but they were out of uh, Cornell. There were some people from Cornell. There were some people from Columbia, of all places, people from Johns Hopkins here at tech. Uh, again, and those are schools that are all very strong, either in engineering or business or the sciences, you know, any, any of those areas like that. And, and well, when Bruce and I were coming through, here's an example. We got what were then the probably the, we and a friend down in Pineville got what were probably the two best degrees in the liberal arts. He was a mathematician now teaching at LSUA, and he was taught by some people from Stanford. They were right here at Tech. It was a husband and wife. And then Bruce and our department chair in history was a guy out of Chapel Hill with a, I think his PhD was from Emory or maybe vice versa, but anyhow, anyhow he was out of Chapel Hill and Emory, but we had a guy from, uh, had a postdoc from Chicago. This was here at Tech. So we got a really terrific liberal arts education at the State Engineers College of all places yeah. because in they really life, put some money in liberal arts in those days. In my lifetime, Tech made the decision, okay, we aren't going to hire tenure track people in English, at least. Again, I know my area, but in English, unless they have a PhD in English. And that, you know, that raised the quality of the scholarship that was coming out of the English department, which is how you get respect nationwide as a, you know, as, as a department. What are y'all publishing, you know? Uh, so like Stephen says, where do you, you go to school and what are you doing now? So yeah, and I, I guess that that was being done at LSU back in the 30s. Um, I think it was inspiring people. I really do. I think it was inspiring, uh, you know, tech. Uh, Grambling was like that. I mean, they had some people out there, and I think still do. There were some really, really top flight faculty that landed over here, you know, right down I-20 at Grambling. And ULM was the same way, being a state pharmacy college or, or pharmacy university. So I believe LSU was almost a catalyst for a lot of this. I see we've been going for about an hour. Any things you wanted to talk about that we didn't know to ask about? Well, this is this is not really related. This is not this is somewhat related to LSU, but it was the most interesting. I think the most surprising and interesting thing that I found out in the book, and it involves the funeral of Carl Weiss, the oh, yeah. assassin or alleged assassin of Huey Long, and um, so there's all these characters. Some of these characters that are, that you meet early in the book wind up at the funeral of Carl Weiss. Uh, the, there was this, there's this priest that I write about in the, in sort of the beginning of the book who decides he's outraged at a, at a book, at a novel that, a that, a ironically that, a, that an English faculty member has written that, that he thinks denigrates the, the co-eds at LSU and he gets the guy fired. Yui has a role, has somewhat of a role in this, or at least approves of it. Um, this guy testifies in the, in the criminal libel trial of one of Yui's favorite, favorite students, and, you know, the, the priest ends up being the person who presides over the funeral of, of Carl, of his assassin. 
And then the uh, so when 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 Weiss is when Weiss is as people who know anything about Louisiana history know that he shoots allegedly or whatever he shoots Huey Long on the evening of of, of September eighth, nineteen thirty five. Weiss's funeral was the next day. They they buried him very quickly. But unlike most political assassins in the United States who maybe who might be lucky to have you know two or three people show up for their graveside service, the the, the the Catholic Church here in here in Baton Rouge downtown um, was packed to to the rafters with more with mourners. The the reporters said that every it's, it looked like every physician in town was was in attendance. Yui Long was not dead yet, by the way, but he would die the next day. But um, in attendance at the funeral, paying honor, paying paying their respects to the assassin of Yui Long, was. Former Governor John Parker, who sent a flower, a floral arrangement. The district attorney for East Baton Rouge Parish, John, John Fred Odom. Um, the congressman from this part of Louisiana, J.Y. Sanders Jr. And the former dean of the LSU Law School, Robert Lee Tullis, who Huey Long had run out of his job. This was, there's no close second. This was the best attended funeral of an American political assassin in U.S. history. And it was right here in Baton Rouge. And it just it, when I when I read the stories about this, it just blew me away because I mean there was what it says was there was no shame in celebrating Yui Long's death in this town, but especially. I mean, yeah, I'm sure you've seen the uh, <laughs> the documentary by um, oh the guy Ken Burns. War Ken Burns. What was his name? Yeah, um, Ken Burns. Yeah, Ken, Ken Burns. Burns. Yes, yes. Uh, so I'm sure you've seen it and. It's kind of two tracks. He goes around and talks to anybody who's not a millionaire, you know, normal people from Louisiana. Everybody loved Huey. We loved Huey. Everybody I knew loved Huey. Then they had the withered old uh, Mrs. Hodding Cotta II. She was uh, everybody hated Huey. And what did she mean by that? Well, there's a class of people in Louisiana who would been used to running things. And she tells the story of the night Huey got shot. She says, I was listening to the radio and they came on and said that a man in a white suit had shot Huey Long. And I ran downstairs to find Cotting because I thought it might be him. He was there and then the phone rang and it was my mother and she said, is hiding okay? And I said, oh, yes, he's here, but I must get off the phone so I can call his mother. And so that was the story. <laughs> and these are the people that were at the funeral. These, uh, you know, plutocrats. The old Louisiana elite, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And, and um, there, you know, I, I, there, was, there was also Cecil Morgan was another person who was interviewed, um, this state rep, former state rep from Shreveport, who had been the general counsel for Standard Oil, who was also sort of celebrating Long's death in that in that um, documentary. I watched that documentary with Russell Long for the first time when when I took I went down to the Senate recording studio with him to see it. Ken Burns oh sent a guy goodness. up, sent, sent a guy down from New York to show it to Senator Long, and so I went with Senator. I arranged for the showing of it. I went down there and watched it with him, and he was really upset. Um, he was really upset by this, you know, he knew it, I think, but, but just to hear people 50 years later still celebrating, talking, so, yeah, celebrating Yui Long's, the assassination of this guy, it was really, it really, it really took him aback and, and, and it should have, it just was, but it was in polite society around this town. It really, it was, it was, he was seen as a problem that 
know, was was never going to go away unless he was unless he was taken well, out. Well, if you if violently. you look at if you look at the so-called respectable people, also on the national scale, like Arthur Schlesinger, who was kind of the in-house historian later for Kennedy, uh, Howard Zinn, who I almost studied with, I, I was recruited by Boston University when I got out of Ruston High School, not knowing at the time that Zinn was head of either political science or history up there. But anyway, Zen points out uh, Schlesinger, and he was no friend of <laughs> to Schlesinger, not just personally, but also professionally and intellectually. Zen was no friend to uh, to uh, the causes of the people and the left. And in fact, uh, Schlesinger is, on, is in the documentary using one of the slurs about Huey, about him being the messiah to the hillbillies or messiah to the rednecks and all that. And they're calling him a fascist, this, that, and the other. And yet those same people, again, were the, the, the elites were the ones that were keeping poor folks in Louisiana down. They were the same ones. And so Schlesinger, by proxy, is basically baptizing the elites by saying what he does. And Zen pointed out that uh, Howard, that not Howard, but that Arthur Schlesinger had to be dragged kicking and screaming to support civil rights because he was living this very comfortable life as the establishment liberal. But he was not originally at least taking much of a stand on civil rights. Yeah, you know, the, the thing about Yui to me was that um – I mean, there's just no, there's just no uh, way around it. He was an authoritarian, um, and a, and let's just use the word. He was a dictator. He was. He was a dictator. He would. He had. He had. He and his organization had taken over control of almost every aspect of Louisiana government down to the local level. I mean, you know that that those special sessions that culminated in that final special session where he was where he was assassinated. He was. They, they gave the governor. You know, really, okay, Allen, but really, Yui Long through okay, Allen, the the authority to hire and fire all the local, you know, municipal officials in places like Alexandria. I mean, he had taken over. They had they had the right to hire and fire all the public school teachers in the state. I mean, they had total control of this state, and it wasn't it was authoritarian control. And um, there were people who who thought that the only way they could ever get Louisiana back into democracy was to to kill the dictator. Now that's it's you know I mean I'm not I'm I'm in no way of um um sanctioning assass political assassination but um you know the, he what 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 he his tactics were were radicalizing people. And so um I'm not saying he was responsible for his own death but his 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 tactics left, I think, people feeling like they had no other recourse if they wanted to, 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 to gain back control of the government. And they were, these, were, these were not people who were, you know, for the people. You know, these were, not, these were people who, who, who saw their, their, um, their privilege, their wealth threatened. And they, but, but the fact remains that long, what Long was doing was, was decidedly undemocratic at least his, his methods were and that's why I like to say that you know and, I, and I'm mostly in, in my book I'm talking about UE and LSU but that he did the best possible things in the worst possible ways you know I mean you can't argue with the with the way he you know he built this university but the tactics were sometimes really questionable and if you know if we really wanted to make this institution what it what it was in in its glory days we should go to school and learn and 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 take on some of Yui's urgency and his vision, but we should definitely, definitely not take on his tactics. Well, he, it seems to me, he adopted the tactics that were available. It's, it's a dictatorship. It's more of a dictatorship of the proletariat. It's the fact that 
90% of the state is voting for him and voting for his politicians. It gives him the power. So, yeah, it also, you know, like, I feel like I understand better what was going on then by looking at January 6th and the role of right-wing violence in American politics and kind of opened my eyes going back to the Civil War, uh, the overturning of Reconstruction. You know, we just had a, an interview about um, the Colfax massacre, which mm -hmm. was called the Colfax uh, riot until recently, where they ended Republican misrule in the state of Louisiana. So, uh, you know, this, this kind of violence often succeeds, much more so than left-wing violence ever has. Yeah, left wing I think blows it's, something I think up. It's... Every oh shit, you know, every all hell breaks loose. But uh, the the right wing does it. Police kind of chill. You know, it's a kind of surprise that they were able to catch the guy and you know, yeah. Well, they shot him, so I guess. Uh, well, there was yeah, they they caught him pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know the the other thing about it though that that where where I think that my my criticism of Long and all this because I, I again I don't really. I try not to to make larger points about Long's, um, you know, the like who did who committed the assassination, whether right, Weiss right. was guilty or not, or you know, I when it comes to Long's authoritarianism, um, it's I really try to limit it, my scope of the book, my focus of the book to what he was, how he, how it affected LSU, because I just didn't want this to be the bigger biography of Long. That's already been written, and but. And but Lamar the, has uh, studied that. Uh, yeah, Lamar's doing that. If you want to yeah, read exactly. On our listeners, we have an episode with Lamar. He goes back over it very carefully. He says, as a lawyer would. And uh, also, he has, I think, a series of three articles on Bayou Braves. So, yeah, yeah if you're interested in that, there's, you know, there's recent work out there. So, yeah. Yeah. But my, my point is that, that, that he, that what Long was doing was hurting LSU because he, if he hadn't died when he did, LSU probably would have lost its accreditation. Sachs, the accrediting body that is still the accrediting body for the university, yeah. would, have, would have disaccredited this, this university because they had lost institutional control. I mean, and Long was going around bragging that he was running LSU, and, so it, was, right. and it was clear that he was. Uh, the, the law the law school would have lost its accreditation. They were, all, they were, on the, they were already on probation, and they would have lost it Clearly, they would have lost it if Long had, had still been around. Long was openly attacking these people uh, because they dared to question what was going on at LSU law, within the law school. And, you know, Long offered the law school dean's job to, to somebody after a 15-minute phone call. He'd never met the person. Um, and he offered him a he offered him the dean's job, and the guy was smart yeah. enough not to take it. But but it was that kind of stuff that was really hurting this university. So he yeah. was helping it. He he brought it up on one hand, but he almost completely brought it down on the other hand. Did they have Did they have developed much of a concept of academic freedom at that time? Was that uh, Did you find any references to that, like in the old records or? Well, yes and no. I mean, there was certainly a a, a sense of academic freedom. And uh, but when it was <laughs> sometimes when it was it was expressed, it was it was quickly batted down. I mean, and the, the most visible and, and notable example of that was was not so much academic freedom, but free speech. In when when the Reveille students, uh, when the when the Reveille ran the, the letter criticizing Yui for appointing a football player to the state Senate, Yui um, blew up. And what resulted was 26, I think it was 26 journalism students being suspended and seven of them being 
expelled from the from the university. And um, what's to, among the, the among the many par- pieces of that that I find appalling aspects of that that I find appalling was that the faculty was that the journalism faculty didn't have the guts to stand up for those students. Right. And, and, and no one there was not a single journalism faculty member who resigned in protest or, or did or that I could find made any public protest of it. So they were there. I think they were scared to death that if they if they raised their just stuck their head the a, a half an inch, uh, you know, above the uh, you know above the trench that they would they they'd get they'd be shot they'd be they'd be fired and they probably were right they probably would have been fired and no one had the no one there were very few people who had the courage to stand up and 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 you know exercise their academic freedom Robert Penn Warren and Clint Brooks Clint Brooks were two who were ready to do it and and they did it and you and and long died before they could before that second publication of the uh, Southern Review came out, which was going to have an article in it critical of Huey Long. I was about to say that might be partly what was behind uh, Ken Warren's negative view of Huey Long, not that he built up the school, but that he was so involved with it that he was tearing it apart. And uh, Of course, you know, Stephen and I have been noticing for a long time that higher education in Louisiana is kind of run on a plantation model, but usually not that explicit. <laughs> well, well, y'all remember what happened years ago over here, right down I-20 to the east at, at the U, what was then NLU, now ULM, one of the sister schools to Tech and Grambling, and Lawson Swearingen almost drove that place into the ground as y'all recall, except that it wasn't a governor doing it or later a senator doing it. But Swearingen was really, he was instituted all kinds of just real draconian measures at NLU. And, and uh, you know, you had a guy keeping a, an anonymous blog, y'all recall, called Truth at ULM. I mean, it was just, it got really nasty over there. Oh, wasn't he a businessman before anyone? Yeah. He didn't yeah. Really, yeah. Sounds like Huey, who's not a creature of academia, uh, but trying to run it the way you'd run, I don't know, the sanitation. He was an attorney. I think he was an attorney, if I'm not mistaken, Lawson. Well, well. Uh, and he had some he had some connections to Ruston too. But yeah, he was really, uh, as my dad used to say, about to drive that thing into the ground and then break it off. Hmm. I mean, really, it was it was getting really bad over there. You know, the thing that that I think with Yui about with academic freedom is that he was. The only th- I think the only standard that Long had, he didn't really care what your, I mean, he didn't, I don't think he paid any attention to any research anybody was doing out there. As long as you didn't criticize Huey Long, you were free to do anything you wanted to do with your research. He wasn't scrutinizing that. If you, But if you spoke out against Long, you were gone. Again, a very close overlap with the Donald Trump approach. Like, you know, most professional politicians that spend 50, 60 years at it, they they know the bad press is just part of it, and uh, but uh, you know, uh, it seems like Long was trying to actively, you know, attack it. And then eventually founded its own paper, the Louisiana Progress, which became the American Progress, to you know get the, the get the Long story out the way he wanted it out there. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I, you know, I, I think that he was. Uh, he was, you know, I don't think Huey or, or, or really anyone around LSU had any, I mean, there just was not a, a, a really entrenched 
tradition of academic of true academic freedom right. here. I mean, there wasn't anything like tenure in those days. Um, you know, there's just no one had any protections at all. I mean, it just was, well, and and so it was. You know, it was it was it was hyper. It was highly politicized on this campus, and you had a, a governor and U.S. senator who was you know who had hired every body of any stature on this campus. The the business manager for the university. This is this is my one of my favorite examples of how you know UE's the cronies that he stuffed into this place. The business manager was a guy named Edgar Jackson, who he's one of the people who went to prison in the Louisiana scandals in the late '30s, early '40s. But he had so he was running he was running the business affairs of, of this of the state flagship institution, and his he didn't have a college degree. I think he go I think he went to Louisiana Tech for a couple of years, but he. Uh, and majored in business, so he had, he had some business courses. But the the most experience he'd had running any uh, in, any kind of enterprise was as a he ran a grocery store in Winfield. Oh my and, God! <laughs> and he was, but he was tight with Yui or OK Allen or both of them, and they 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 let him run the business affairs of LSU. So that's that, so that that's it was so there were a lot of there was a lot of cronyism here. Right. Um, they were doing great things with the faculty, but when it came to all the other stuff, you know, I think they were. I mean, and what 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 came out later is they were they were milking this place dry. I mean, you know, by the time they got through with it, you had been dead for almost five years. By the time they got through with it, LSU was was five hundred thousand dollars in the hole and had to borrow the money from the legislature to keep the place open. And you know, nothing will bring a place down quite like financial, um, you know, hanky panky. It's just uh, something people understand is you're stealing from the school, which is stealing from the uh, students, but even also from us, the taxpayers. Um, so yeah, they don't like that. Well, thank you so much. This has been a great episode. Um, I really love talking about Huey Long and uh, and LSU. Uh, is a graduate of LSU. Uh, I'm glad that they survived. <laughs> yes spoiler alert the university survived right right i, I gave away the end but it was it was it was wounded as evidenced by the the, the frequent photos you post to the library right yeah well yeah and and uh, the other spoiler alert Yui Yui long did not survive so that's another spoiler alert. <laughs> didn't. you know one of the things we didn't mention earlier that i thought about it's not just the money. It's not just the buildings. You've got to have the books because mm -hmm. scholarship runs on a library. And, uh, you know, I guess at the time it was Hill uh, Library. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. It's where they now have the rare books. But uh, you've got to build up a good library. And that costs money. So, you know, all of this. Stuff. It was in its day. And up until the time Bruce and I were in school, that was the best library on the Gulf Coast besides maybe the library at Rice. Yeah, and you know that's in terms the, of the holdings, in other words. People, yeah, right. And pe people ask me. I get asked this question from time to time when I'm out speaking, and they say, "What would?" Because um, they know that I'm a, an advocate for the library. Um, they'll say, "What do you think Yui would do about that?" And I say, "Well, I don't. You know, I don't know where he would find the money. I don't know what he would do exactly. What he would do, but I. But the one thing I am a thousand percent certain of is that there would that that situation would not." fester for more than six months right he, he yeah. would have found the way to build a new library he would be he would be mortified that his university had that had a library with trash cans on the top floor collecting yeah. rainwater you know i just he wouldn't stand for it and he would not there's no way he would stand for it and yet we stand for it we just we've I, been standing for it for decades i think it would be underneath the stadium 
<laughs> maybe so maybe so but it would be it would be a first class library yep. i guarantee you it would be the pride and joy of louisiana if you had anything to do with it yeah. and you know he might have he might have sold the you know he might have he, he might have sold the mississippi river bridge to do it and done it illegally but by god there would be a new library on this campus i can promise you that well thank you so much bob tell yeah, us really the name of your new book and any other books you want to plug while you're on here because you've got oh stuff. well thank you yeah it's it's kingfish u ue long and lsu and uh my my, my book before that was a, a, a book that uh, you, you you guys were kind enough to have me on to talk about a few years ago uh, called backrooms and bayous my life in louisiana politics mm -hmm. yes yes and i've got a new book that i'm just finishing up um that'll be out in a, probably year and a half two years um but it's uh it's the it's it, the working title is uh, "You Are My Sunshine," Jimmy Davis, and the biography of an American song. Well, cool! One of my favorites, Governor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you need to you need to write one on the history of tech. No, well, no, well, oh, can I can I add can I add one story about tech in the, from the book? Because there is a story yeah. about tech in the book yeah. that I do yeah. that I I can't believe I waited till the very end to mention this. Oh, but yeah. you know, when when LSU was was expanding, and one of the places it expanded beyond new orleans was was into monroe when they made when J jimmy no yeah uh, made it the uh the, the northeast center for lsu up there people in ruston were were, were re reacted with horror because they thought they were next uh that they that the whole that be because ue the first bill that ue vetoed when he became governor was an appropriate it was a seventy five thousand dollar appropriation for what is now slu and hammond and people were 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 they didn't understand it and then they, as they put it all, started putting the pieces together, they realized that he was he was pretty much all about, all about LSU. And when they saw what he did, what he and No did to uh, Northeast, uh, they thought that they thought that Tech was next. And there was this there's this great headline in the Rustin Daily Leader from that time that says LSU is octopus of the state because <laughs> they thought the the tentacles were soon to wrap around tech and make tech the you know ruston center for louisiana state university you know we just had that i mean it constantly comes up um they uh renamed the state university system to ulm university of louisiana at monroe ull university of louisiana at lafayette we could have been the university of louisiana at ruston but we've got a brand our brand is the word tech and it, it carries some cachet it tells well, dan, dan renault was a, a good friend of mine versus his dad was dean of, was undergrad dean at business for, for years and years at tech around 30 years or more and he told me one time that dan renault was on record saying as long as i'm president of louisiana tech <laughs> it will remain louisiana tech in other words right. i'm not going to change the name to university no. of louisiana at ruston yeah it was going to stay tech well but partly <clears throat> we had like bruce said we had the brand which was also affiliated with the lady textures because we were a powerhouse in women's basketball back in the day mm -hmm. well, it was tech before it was tech because when i was growing up the formal name was louisiana polytechnic Institute, which you never ever heard because it was already Louisiana Tech. So we just, you know, went with it and it's been a good brand. But yeah, you know, they, they fight to keep that distinctive, um, you know, distinctive uh, uh, personality. That brand, but everything yeah. with it. Yeah. Not just the, the name, but also the colors. Well, you know, the tech blue, it's a, it's a real color. You know, distinctive with the blue uh, brand of the school. Anyways, that's a great story. <laughs> Rustin people have always been a little contrary, so that's a, <laughs> uh, 
Well, thank you so much. And when that other book comes out, let us know and we'll get you back on the Twitter. I will. Thank you, guys. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks for having yeah, me on. Thank you so much. Bye. Take care. Bye. Take care. So, yeah, we want to thank Bob for uh, coming on our podcast and discussing his book. And he, along with my favorite governor, LSU, is my alma mater for my PhD. So I'm invested in both those subjects. And I think we mentioned in the, in the interview, my first... Um, academic office as a, you know, as, as a, as a grad student, um, my very first office I ever had, uh, was in the fifth floor under the, uh, uh, stadium, Death Valley Stadium, and I had to walk up the stairs, and you could tell it had all at one time been, um, uh, dorm rooms, but they had made them into offices at this point, but they still had showers, and some of the, some of the, uh, places that weren't being used, they still had the two single beds. They, they were ready to roll, man, if they needed a good room. So it was um, still kind of, it had that kind of dorm look to it. And yeah, and, and my point is that building was put there under the leadership of Huey Long. So um, it's not that he built it personally, but that's my connection. You know, one degree of separation from Huey Long is that he built the building I had an office in. We need to do a related um, show, as I keep mentioning, I'm, I'm related to them as, as, as their in-laws, so, so the children of Huey would be my relatives, actually, but uh, we need to do a show on Earl, since he's one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. and, um, he was he was not polished at all, <laughs> like Huey, who was very polished, and Earl was very down-home. He was what was called... And he played to the stereotype well, because he was not like this internally, but he played to the stereotype of the North Louisiana hillbilly. Uh, and you so hear Huey Long talking, he can code switch. Like, oh, he yeah. can sound just like his brother, um, or Uncle Earl, but he can also, you know, sound like uh, he's at home with the elite of any place in the country. So, he sounded like uh, an educated intellectual southerner in his basically his public, yeah, his public mask, but he'd rip that mask right off, and he's, you know, and if like, he, Earl, like you said, I'm the best, best friend, just a poor man, and you can hear that old North Louisiana Hill Country dialect, mm -hmm. and you can hear it still a lot around here in the more remote parishes, like Wynn Parish, uh -huh. Jackson Parish, well, Parish, you know, all these hill parishes. We live 40 miles away from uh, Winfield, which is where Huey and Earl grew up, and I think one of our most recent trips through there, we stopped and took pictures of the uh, statue of Uncle Earl in the uh, in their uh, park there. They have a lot of parks. I think it was Earl, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it's on the site of the old Long uh, family residence, I think. Their house was on that site. Ah, how about that? I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, for the Lithian Anthology Podcast, I'm Grace I'm Steve Payne. We certainly want to thank Bob for coming on and uh, for you know publishing this this work. This is a really valuable uh, book. Just a, a little uh, before Bob did this. This is a little explored uh, aspect of Huey and LSU's lives. So if you're interested in, in Huey Long, if you're interested in LSU, do pick up a copy of the book or borrow it from the library uh, to read. It is a valuable book, I think. Uh, and it really, Huey is one of those figures like Abe Lincoln where the, the interest in them never really wanes, you know. Right. Some, some political figures, both 
you know, state level and national level uh, tend to go in and out of favor, out of interest uh, from the public and from scholars. But Huey is like, I mean, he really is, he, he remains perpetually this inter interesting and really intriguing kind of character. Well, yeah, and even today, anybody that's interested in Roman history knows the, the Gracchi brothers, who are like the uh, Huey and Earl of uh, 2nd century BC Rome, who were trying to bring reform and were assassinated for their efforts. Um, and, and, you know, Huey and Earl have been compared to those brothers for a very long time, but even anybody that's interested in Roman history knows about them even today. Yeah, the, I the, don't the, think, the people's consuls, what they call that? Yeah. yeah, yeah, the people's tribune, right? Um, and that's, that's what Huey Long and Earl were. And so I don't think they're going anywhere. <laughs> no, no, and that's why I was, you know, as, as we close out here, I was going to say we need to do an Earl Long episode, but we need an another good, uh, there are, I think only a couple of these things, but you've got uh, Jack McGuire's book on Earl Long's last campaign. And also yeah, we talked to him, I believe, but we could stand to talk to somebody else, you we know. Did, and so, we did, and we missed, of course, our our old professor, Dr. Peoples, Morgan Peoples, who co-wrote that book with the guy from Southeastern, I think, Mike Ertz, I think, about mm -hmm. Earl Long. That was, a, that was the first full-length biography, a book-length biography of Earl. So I think those, those may be the only, I'm not sure, there may be others, and if, if you know and, of them, at the time, it would have been considered contemporary history, you know. Oh, yeah. Or, they were, you know, maybe 10 years dead by the time they're working on it. So uh, they, they could get a lot more first-hand information, all of that. Oh, yeah, a lot of those people. Well, in fact, when they did the movie on Earl Long, LBB did a really good state-produced documentary for about the life of Uncle. I think it's called Uncle Earl, and you can, by the way, go online and watch it. There's a digitized copy of it there. Yeah, yeah. And it's a valuable, it's a valuable work in itself, but you get a lot of audio and video that you're not going to get in a book. I mean, it's, you know, you're watching these things unfold. And, and if you want a fun one, Rip Blaze. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it, uh, it takes some, you know, liberties, but it's kind of right, you know. Um, that makes her involved with a lot more stuff than he would have had her in on. But that's just a, you know, you need your intellectual, you need your, your person that's kind of the outsider watching this. The chorus, she's the chorus. Well, um, and again, and it's it's a real, you know, you look at that the LPD thing, and I mean, when they cut away from showing the footage of Earl, or also they do some audio footage as well, where you get to hear some of his speeches and so forth. And a lot of those people, like Bill Dodd, and, and I think Victor Busey, the labor leader, but a lot of them were still living. Right, yeah. Because that thing was shot, I think, in the 70s or 80s. Yeah, totally. Alive. And this is back when we were in college, you know, I think maybe in the 80s when they released it. And you, you were in seminary and I was in college. And so you can go and listen to them in their own words talk about their acceptance of Uncle Earl. Uh, and as Bill Dodd says about him, quote, he was a political genius. He was. Because Gosh. all that rough exterior inside was this extremely, not even not even bright guy, but this really sharp guy who just, he knew, he didn't just know politics, he knew people. He knew human nature. He yes. Knew what he was right, yeah. And, and, you have to... and Huey has a lot of that himself. He knew what people, the corporate needed. Uh, and I think it's our own fault as progressives and Democrats that we don't seem to try to figure out a way to talk 
to the corn pone masses like they did. You know. And if we don't go after their vote, it's a lead pipe censure, we're going to get it. Um, well, it's the, the old, what they call it, retail politics. And yeah. He's one yeah. of the last Louisiana politicians, besides, well, who, who revived it really was Edward Edwards. Edwards had kind of, he was kind of the heir to the lawns in that regard. I remember he, let's say he stopped at a farm and a farmer had a, a flock of hens that he's trying to unload and he says, I'll buy them all. And they put some, you know, loads up the, the chickens and heads down the road and every stop he made, he gave away a chicken or two, you know, and, uh, 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 that was his way of kind of spreading the wealth, you know. This one guy. Oh, he did that with peas. Everybody else gets supper, you know. He would go and he would go and he would go and to some farmer, like my granddad, for example. They were actually my grandparents were big time long people, or your early Huey both. And he would stop off at some farmer's place, and he would get buy like a bushel of peas. I mean, I yeah. nowadays that's a heck of a lot of peas, and then you buy like a couple of bushels. That's a heck of a lot. He would go to those things and be shelled, oftentimes in the early mechanical shell, sell them, and then they'd, they'd uh, bag them up in a little paper bag so you'd have a mess of peas to feed, say, purple people. Well, look, because yeah. Earl stopped off at somebody's house, Uncle Earl's got a mess of peas or beans to give to somebody. Well, of course, they're going to relate to him. But they see a person to him, you know? He could have called his place in the country the hunting camp or the fishing camp. He called it the pea patch, which yeah. implies hard work and also homemade stuff and, and uh, like you say he can give those peas away doesn't matter where they came from this morning they were in my pea patch <laughs> yeah well yeah and uncle earl came by you know uncle earl yeah. came by give us some peas i've been kind of brought me a mess of peas or brought me a mess of beans i mean that meant something to people in you know like it's 48 looking that shop right there across from the uh um courthouse in Winfield, oh, yeah, uh, Uncle, Uncle Earl's Pea Patch, and they have the best peas and the best cornbread, and, you know, they're, they're ham, yeah, it's good, it's nothing, uh, but really, yeah, I, I'm missing that place, I feel like I need it's to go old, back. It's a full-time North Louisiana country cooking, that's what that is, you know? yeah. <laughs> so, so, again, I mean, we need a, another book-length treatment, I think, on well, maybe and that was, yeah, that was his way of staying in touch with his constituency, who are mostly rural and had chickens and peas and stuff like that. And he could show that he's a man of the people that way. Well, Louisiana was still, and this is back to Huey, and we'll, you know, kind of be quiet here and sign off. But I mean, Huey, but even up to the time of, you know, say 10, 10 years later, Louisiana was still very rural at that time. I mean, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The urbanization had not taken effect as it is now. I mean, Louisiana up to say 1953 you know, does not look, look like Louisiana 2023, quite frankly. It just doesn't. Uh, You're just first, getting the first roads and bridges, you know, that those have been, you know, the, the Longs have been building stuff for a while, but it's still basically Louisiana, like, you would have recognized it from the turn of the century. They would, yeah. would have been surprised, except maybe at the roads. The roads the and the farms. Because you had Earl building all the train hospitals, like, like Conway over here in, in Monroe. Mm -hmm. And also where I was born, Confederate and Social, which is now part of LSU. Uh, so again, they, they really made some, they basically yanked Louisiana into the 20th century, is what they did. Oh, yeah. yeah. So Gosh, can you imagine what our state would look like without the long? And the, and the uh, WPA and those other programs, just think about it like. 
gosh, as backward as we are, it would just be, you know, unlivable. Uh, it'd, it'd be pretty bad. And because it's already, you know, like we keep talking, it's particularly for maternal mortality rate, mortality rate for kind of a rough place. And that's just one of, one of the main markers. Right? So, All right. Uh, well, for the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, I'm Grace and I'm Steve Payne, and we're going to let everyone go this time around. But again, thanks to all of you for, for uh, listening in. We also want to thank Bob, and we hope that you'll all join us for next week's edition of the Louisiana Anthology Podcast. Bye for now.